last Sunday's sermon and this Sunday's sermon uh, really fit together. If you missed last Sunday, I really encourage you to go listen to that or watch that. Both of these sermons are really just preaching the gospel. They're just clarification about what it means to be saved. Last Sunday, the focus was more on the, the marks of true salvation. This Sunday, the focus is more on the process of how God saves. But in both cases, we're really just preaching the good news of Jesus here um, and explaining what it means to truly be born again. So last Sunday, we looked at the story of the planting of the church in Thessalonica, and then we looked at the moment when this letter was written. And so it was written after Paul had been ripped away from the Thessalonians so soon after the church was started. Remember, all this happened in just a few months, probably in the year A.D. 50. But then, after they were ripped away, Timothy came back and he brought this report that they were still continuing on in the faith. And when Paul heard that news, he just about burst with joy. And he kept overflowing with gratitude to God. And then he eagerly wrote this letter to encourage them and to teach them further. This was just a very young church. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see that Paul kept thanking God over and over again that the Thessalonians were continuing in the work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And so we were challenged last Sunday to consider how our work for the Lord might be motivated by our trust in God, how our sacrificial, costly labor for others might be motivated by our love, and how our hope might come right out of our, uh, our, how our steadfastness might come right out of our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also learned that those things are essential characteristics of the Christian life. Those are essential evidences of true conversion. Because remember, Paul was afraid that his church planning in Thessalonica had been in vain. He was afraid that these professing Christians would just fall away from the Lord and show that they'd never been truly born again. So that's why he was so excited when he heard the good news. So our text this morning, we, we continue here in chapter 1, and it continues a similar theme, but from a different perspective. I think you can think of it like this. Once Paul had been reassured that they were continuing in the fruits of true salvation, he then thought back to when they first professed Christ as Savior. And when he looked back, he recognized that there were early pieces of evidence that God was truly saving them. So chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he was confident that God had chosen them for salvation because of how the gospel came to them. Okay, so we'll talk about how the gospel came to them in a few minutes. But first of all, in verse 4, Paul says that he knows that they were chosen by God for salvation. This choosing 
is also frequently referred to in the Bible as calling. God calls those whom he will save. And we, we often refer to this doctrine as election. The Bible consistently chooses, I mean, consistently teaches that God chooses those who will be his people. The Old Testament says over and over again that God chose Israel to be his people apart from any works or goodness of their own. And then the New Testament emphasizes that those who were saved by Christ were chosen by God not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. That's 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. Now, we might struggle to understand how people can be responsible to repent and believe the gospel. And if we repent and believe the gospel, we will be saved. And yet at the same time, God chooses those who will be saved. The best thing to do with that is just hold on to what the Bible says, even if we aren't able to perfectly fit it all together in our minds. Election is a topic that could be studied for a long time. The number of books written about it are, 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 is huge. But what we want to do is focus on three things about election that are in this passage um, because this passage answers one common question about it. It reminds us of one of the right responses to it, and it tells us the basis for, for election. So let's take those one at a time. First of all, this passage answers one common question, and the question is this. If we believe that God chooses those who will be saved, won't that make us unmotivated to share the gospel? All right, but look at what we just read. Verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When Paul came to Thessalonica, he had no idea who had been chosen by God for salvation. He did not have an apostolic radar that allowed him to look at a crowd and just see everybody who was going to get saved. There was one way to find out whom God had chosen. Preach the gospel. Tell them the good news of Jesus. And in the process, you'll find out whom God has chosen for salvation because the gospel will come to them with power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. This also, so that means that God chooses people for salvation, but he accomplishes that through us as we share the gospel. So share Christ with everybody you can. This also means that a person who is hearing the gospel does not need to think, hmm, I wonder if I'm chosen or not. I wonder if I can get saved or not. No, if you are hearing the gospel, if your ears are open to hear the gospel and to desire to be saved, then come to Christ for salvation and he will save you. And, and you will look back and it will be clear that you were chosen for salvation. But that's the last thing you need to worry about in the moment. Just repent and believe the good news. Just come to Christ and he will not cast you out. Okay? So that helps us with one common question about election. Secondly, this passage reminds us of one of the right responses to election. And we'll see others in the book because Paul talks about this more. We'll see later in the book that the doctrine of election should motivate us to live for the Lord, and it should encourage us that our salvation is secure. That's how he's going to end the book. But here in these verses, what we see is that election should result in thanksgiving. Verse 2 begins, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And then verse 4 actually continues that grammar. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In other words, we give thanks to God because we know that he has chosen you. 
God's choosing to save leads us to give thanks to God. It is a right response, is gratitude. And then, this passage also points to the basis for election. Verse 4, For we know brothers loved by God that He has chosen you. By the way, Paul uses that word brothers in Thessalonians more, actually quite a bit more than in any other letter. Probably because he loved this church family so much. They were so dear to his heart. But what was even more important was that God loved them. You, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. John Stott writes that in the Bible, no explanation of God's election is given except God's love. So rather than getting bogged down with arguments about election, we can come with simple faith and say, wow, God loves me. God chose to save me. Thank you, Father. And then go tell others that he'll save them too. Now, let's get to the because. How did Paul know that God had chosen them for salvation? Well, first of all, because of how the gospel came. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So first of all, it says that the gospel came. That means that when Paul came to Thessalonica, he announced the good news that the Son of God had died on the cross for their sins and then risen from the grave, that Jesus is coming to earth as a judge someday, but that if you will turn from your sin and come to follow him, he will save you if you will believe in his death and his resurrection for you. So Paul and his team brought that good news to Thessalonica, and he says in verse 5 that that good news came not only in word. Now, it did come in word, right? You can't just live like Jesus and hope that people will pick up on that and, and be saved. The gospel has to be spoken. It has to be explained with words. But God has to make those gospel words powerful. That's what Paul is saying. So the rest of verse 5 says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That is what happens when God is at work to save. The word comes like that. Now the Greek grammar experts say that this tells us two ways the gospel came with power. In other words, our gospel came to you in power, that is, in the power of the Holy Spirit and and the power of full conviction. So first of all, the power of the Holy Spirit. Two things I could be referring to. First of all, it might be referring to miracles that God did in Thessalonica. When you just read the letter There's no mention of miracles there, and there's not a mention in Acts 17 of miracles in Thessalonica. That doesn't mean they didn't happen, though, because we know that they happened after Thessalonica in Corinth. We know that they happened before Thessalonica in Iconium and in in Galatia. And when Paul looks back on his ministry years later, he, he spoke of what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. And he called these things the signs of a true apostle. So it's fairly likely that in Thessalonica there were miracles that accompanied the gospel preaching. 
But the other thing the power of the Holy Spirit could be referring to is the power of the Spirit in their hearts as they heard the Word preached. It's only by the power of the Spirit that the Word of God penetrates into cold and spiritually dead hearts. Over in John chapter 3, Jesus pictured it like a wind that blows through someone's life. He said, you must be born again. And then he said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is a miraculous power of God through the Word of God that draws a heart to salvation. So Paul says, I know that God chose you because when I told you the good news about Jesus, the words weren't just words to you. They had the power of the Holy Spirit with them. Then he also says that he knows because those words had the power of full conviction. Now, this is a little tricky because um, at first glance, when I see that word conviction, I think of conviction of sin, like realizing our guilt before God. But that's not this word, and that's not what Paul's saying here. This is the word for confidence or assurance. The gospel came to them with full confidence, full certainty. So what does that mean? Again, there are kind of two ideas. It it could mean, it could be referring to Paul, that as Paul preached the gospel, he preached it with conviction, with the full assurance that this is true. Remember, he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And so even when he was beaten and threatened and imprisoned time after time, it couldn't stop him because he wasn't making this up. He saw Jesus, and he knew all these other people who had seen the risen Jesus. The King of Kings was alive. The King of Kings was reaching out to the world to save sinners. And so as Paul preached the gospel, he preached with powerful assurance This is true. Jesus lives. The other thing this could suggest, though, is that when the Thessalonians heard it, because God's power was working in their hearts, they became deeply convinced that it was true. Not just that it was Paul's confidence, but it became their confidence. They heard the gospel, and they said, that's true. God brought them to the conviction that Christ had died, and Christ was risen. So let's read that one more time. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Verse 4, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. How does He know? Well, first of all, because of how the gospel came. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, at this point, I would like to have us skip down to verses 9 and 10, because there Paul continues to explain what happened when the gospel came to the Thessalonica. Thessalonica. He continues to explain how he knows they've been chosen by God. But this time it's a different answer. How did Paul know? Because of how the gospel was received. First, how the gospel came. Now in verses 9 and 10, how the gospel was received. So verse 9, and this begins with a kind of a complicated clause. It says, For they themselves report concerning us 
the kind of reception we had among you. (laughs) That's a lot of pronouns right there. Look back at the second half of verse 8, though. Start right in the middle of verse 8. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Okay, so it's like this. It's like if we planted a church in Corona and God abundantly blessed and the word of God came with power and people were saved. And then we went down to visit some Christians in San Diego and we said, can we tell you about what God did in Corona? And they said, oh, you don't need to tell us. We're already telling everybody else because we heard about it. Okay, that's what he's saying here. They had already heard the, people, the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia had already heard about what God did in Thessalonica. So what did God do? How was the gospel received? So back to verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. What was that? And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is saying that they responded to the gospel with repentance. True salvation involves turning from idols to God. Jeffrey Wema calls it a truly radical break with their previous way of life. You know, in Thessalonica in that day, religion was not compartmentalized like it is in California in our day. From Thessalonica, they could see Mount Olympus 50 miles away where the Greek gods supposedly lived. And those gods were part of their family life, part of their social life, part of their work life. The guilds, the trade unions would often be unified around a particular god. And so to turn from idols was not like some private spiritual decision. It meant a really difficult break from the culture they had grown up in. This was not just adding Jesus to their life. This was turning from idols to God, and that is always the nature of true salvation. You can't have the world and all of its sinful ways and have Jesus too because they are enemies of each other. You have to choose. We will have an example of this in our Bible study later this morning when we look at the transgender ideology that has captured the minds and hearts of so many people in our country today. If you don't get in line with the transgender movement, you are a bigot, a hater, an oppressor, And yet, if you follow Christ, you have to reject transgender ideology. You have to, because it is so contrary to Christ and truth. And so the end of verse 9 says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This ideology in our culture today is not life-giving, and it's not true. But it is like a god. It is the centerpiece of many people's lives. It is, for many teenagers and young adults, the most important part of who they are and how they view the world and what they live for. And that cannot be because that spot is reserved for Christ alone. He is the creator and the king of kings, and he must be the most important part of our lives and how we view the world and what we live for. So to come to Christ means we must be willing to break from the sinful things of this world to break from the gods of our age. Now, that doesn't mean 
that we will have the strength to immediately break from all those things. It may be a bumpy road as we seek God's help to turn away from those things. But to come to Christ, we must have the willingness to turn from idols. You see how visual that picture is in the Bible? It's turning. Turn from idols to God to be saved and to serve to serve Him. See that word serve in verse 9? To serve the living and true God. Once again, salvation is not just adding Jesus to your life. It is coming to Christ with a heart to serve Him. It's not, you know, give me my ticket to heaven and then I'll go back to serving myself. But rather, it is, God, I have lived my life to serve myself long enough. That is sinful. That is wrong. Now I want to come serve my Creator and my King. All right. So here's what we've seen so far. The gospel came to them not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit in a full conviction. And they responded by turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And now, finally, verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three big ideas in that verse. First of all, the belief in the resurrection of Christ. As we just said, Paul came to Thessalonica as an eyewitness of the resurrection, telling them that Jesus was alive. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians who were saved believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But then in addition to that, the other, another, second part of verse 10, they also believed that Jesus was the one who could save them from the wrath to come. Part of the saving response to the gospel is believing that our sin deserves the wrath of God. And it is right there that many people stop and won't go any further. They don't have any problem admitting that they have problems. They don't have any problem admitting that their life's a little banged up, that they've slipped up, that they've had some troubles, that they could use a little help, that they could use a little grace. But they refuse to agree with God that their sin deserves judgment and the wrath of God. Now, God's wrath is not like human anger. This is part of the trick when we talk about God's wrath. We, we immediately think of, of the, the kind of emotional outbursts and temper and vindictive meanness of the anger of human beings. That's not what we're talking about. John Stott writes that God's wrath is his holy and uncompromising antagonism to evil with which he refuses to negotiate. It is the right response of a holy God to sin. And so to be saved, we can't just say, yeah, I'm an imperfect person. I'm a little bit messed up. To be saved, we have to be willing to say, my sin deserves the judgment of God. Jesus had to die on the cross because of my sin. And if Jesus doesn't save me, I will face the wrath of God someday. That is humbling, but that is true. So one part of verse 10 is belief in the resurrection. Another part of verse 10 is believing that Jesus is the one who can save us from the wrath to come. And then the final theme in verse 10 is that Jesus is coming again from heaven. That's how the verse begins. And to wait 
for his son from heaven. When Paul was in Athens and he was talking to those brilliant philosophers about Jesus, he said to them, this is Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He said, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's that? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Oh, that's who it is. Jesus, the risen king and judge. So really, belief in the resurrection of Christ and belief in the second coming of Christ go right together. As the Christian church has historically said, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And that is, believing those things is essential to the gospel. Okay, so let's finish up by just considering three responses to those, that pretty simple description of what uh, salvation looks like. So first of all, have these things been true of you? Have you been saved by Jesus Christ? Now, every person's story of salvation is unique. For some people, it is very quick and dramatic. For other people, it is a long, many-year experience of God starting to work and using different things and seed being sown, and then finally they come to repentance and faith in Christ. So we're not at all trying to oversimplify what happens in an individual's life. The details can vary a lot, but the basics are the same. Somehow you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and God's Word is powerful by the Holy Spirit in your heart. And you believe that your sin deserves God's judgment, that Jesus died to save you from the wrath to come. And you believe that Jesus rose again and that Jesus is coming again. And so then you want repentance You want to turn from having lived just to serve yourself, from having loved the things of this world that are opposed to God. And you want to turn to God, both to be forgiven and also to serve Him. So if you think of yourself as a Christian today, but those things have never been something that are personally true for you, then you need to come to Christ and be saved today. And you can come to Christ and be saved today. He will not cast you out. Secondly, we can ask this. Are those things true of you today? Because when you are saved through Christ, those same things actually continue to characterize your life. Like, you continue to live with an attitude of repentance. There will be new things to turn away from. (laughs) There will be new sins. There will be new temptations. There will be new struggles that you will need to turn from sin back to God. Repentance is not a one-and-done thing. It's an ongoing, really, attitude that continues in our lives. That is true also with, like, um, gratitude to God. It's true with uh, setting our hope on the second coming of Christ. And those are not just things that we do once. They are our ongoing characteristics of the born-again heart. So first, have you been saved by Jesus Christ? Secondly, are these ongoing characteristics of your heart? And then finally, let's remember what the overall tone of this passage is. What is it? Verse 2. First words of verse 2. What's the overall tone of this whole passage? We give 
thanks. This is a passage of thanksgiving. This is a passage celebrating salvation. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Paul was so grateful for what God was doing in their lives. And so everything we've talked about today fits under that. We give thanks to God for you. So we can take each of the truths in this passage and celebrate and rejoice and give thanks to God. We can say, we should say, to be loved and chosen by God, that is amazing. To turn from dead false gods to the true and living God, that's actually awesome. To have a Savior from the wrath to come, what peace and reassurance that is. To be able to live with the confidence that Jesus is alive and Jesus is coming again, what a confidence that is when the headlines are terrifying. So the overall point of the passage is, if God has saved you, if God has saved others whom you know and love, thank Him. How much? Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Celebrate it. Talk about it. Spread the good news. Respond to it. Live in it. And give gratitude to God for his great salvation. I hope that above all else, we're going to talk about identity again in this next Bible study, right? I hope that above all else, you might be able to say, you know who I am? there's just one thing you've got to know about me, it's that I'm a great sinner who has a great Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us when we didn't love you, for choosing us when we would not choose you, for coming to us when we were not seeking you, for bringing the light and life and hope of your word into our hearts. Thank you for being a great God who saves great sinners. Thank you for every person in this room whom you have saved. If there is anyone in this room who has not yet been born again, save them today. Use these two messages last week and today to save. May the wind of the Spirit blow. Bring new birth into hearts. And help us to love you and live in gratitude to you and trust you, serve you all of our days as our great God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. 1042. So we will come back in about 15 minutes and we will jump into Bible study uh, together. So let's take a break and uh, rejoice in the Lord in these things before we gather again.